Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God, inspired by His Spirit and profitable for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that which he, that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Much could be said about this passage. The apostle continues to refute his adversaries to discuss why he doesn't faint under his afflictions, as we considered a little bit from chapter 4 last week. The apostle did not faint because of his hope, his desire, 
and his assurance of eternal happiness after his death, verses 1 through 5. He refers to his body as a tabernacle, as does Peter in the book of first, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1. He refers to a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. This is the inheritance that God has promised to his people, secured by the obedience of Christ. Remember Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he's talking about. And all the benefits that Christ gives to us, including the final resurrection, sealed by the Spirit of God and finalized in the resurrection of our bodies. He says that we desire to be clothed upon. This, again, is a reference to the immortality of the body upon the resurrection of the dead. We will not have nakedness like Adam and Eve. You remember that? They had guilt and shame. They were expulsed from the presence of God. So we will be clothed upon, he says, and mortality will be swallowed up of life. The the curse of God against Adam's sin and our sin will finally be removed at that day. God, he says, gives us an earnest of of his spirit, verse 5. That is, he makes a payment. When someone wants to buy something, they make what's called an earnest payment. I mean to pay you the rest. I'll give it all to you later. But here's part of the price now. That's what the Spirit is for us. Verses 6 through 11, we have this assured hope inferring comfort to us and also making us alive to our duties. This is the truth that if we have hope of God's grace in the future, it encourages us in the present Even in very difficult circumstances, as we'll look at next week, Paul had very troubling circumstances, and yet he kept his eye focused on those things that are unseen, not on the things that were seen. Because as we saw from the end of chapter 4, the things seen, they only last for a time. Those things that are unseen, they last forever. And therefore, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith governs our conduct in this life. It bolsters our confidence. It nourishes our hope. It confirms our knowledge. He says he preferred to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And whether he was in the body or absent from the body, he labors, he says, to be pleasing unto God, to be accepted of him. Some people say you ought to accept Jesus into your heart. That's not the gospel question. The gospel question is, does Jesus accept you? Does he receive you? And that's the question he's asking. Why? Because we will all appear. This is why he labors diligently. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a day when we will receive, whether good or bad, what is done in the body. And if we desire to be pleasing to Christ... We must make it our ambition to do so in this life. That's what kept Paul from discouragement. That's what kept him from not stopping his ministry when doors seemed closed, when people wanted to kill him, when they spoke against him, when they lied and slandered. It did not matter when he had diseases in his eyes or a thorn in his side. Those things, he could set them aside and say, but my master has called me to my duty. I will appear before him in judgment, knowing therefore, he says, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If we do not preach the terror of the Lord, 
the remedy seems a little bit excessive, doesn't it? If it's not really that bad, my sin, and it doesn't bring the wrath of God against me in eternal flames in hell, why should God send his son? What's the point? What's the big deal? Couldn't God just forgive it like the Muslims say? They say that Allah is merciful and gracious. Can't he just dispense with his justice? Just pretend like it never happened? Can't God do that? No, he can't. So there is terror from the Lord. And it's actually a participle. Knowing this terror, that's how we persuade men. By the knowledge of the judgment of God at the judgment day, that's how men are persuaded to believe in Christ. Gospel preaching and persuasion always is preceded by legal terrors, by the judgment of God against sin, by the authority of Christ to judge us according to our works. If you then would be accepted by Christ, know the terror of the final judgment. You must reckon with the demands of God's law if you desire to flee to the refuge in Jesus Christ. Verses 12 through 15, the apostle gives a defense or an apology because he seemed to commend himself. But he had good reason in this. He had good reason because of these false apostles. He wants them to have an answer, he says in verse 12, to them which glory in appearance and not in heart. These are the false apostles. They Judaized. They were formalists. They focused on circumcision and the observance of the Mosaic ceremonial laws. Perfectly fine for their time before Christ has come, but these focus on these external matters, not on the changing and circumcision of the heart, in other words. And Paul didn't care if they thought he was crazy. If we are beside ourselves, it is of God. That's a lunatic person out of their mind, in other words. If you think that's how I am, he says, just know this. It's because of my devotion to God that I seem crazy to the false teachers. They promised prosperity and ease of life. They promised that the Jews would not reject you, that you could not be persecuted by the Jews so long as you follow these laws. If we're sober, he says, it's for your cause. We think clearly, in other words, to build you up. In either way, we commend ourselves to your conscience, Paul says. Not only so, but the love of Christ, he says, constrained him. Why should Paul renounce himself? Why should he completely devote himself to the service of Christ? Well, think of what Christ has done for us. The love of Christ, he says, constraineth us. And when we apprehend, when we understand the infinite love of Christ who died for us and for all of his church, what else could we do? Could we waste our lives on ourselves? Paul says no. If one died for all, he says, then we're all dead. Christ died not for those living but for those dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And what is the natural result? If Christ died with this infinite love for his people, what should we live for? Live for ourselves? Live for our own pleasures, our own ease, our own comfort? He says no. 
that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, when you read the word that in our English Bibles, it can sometimes refer to that wall, for example. It can be pointing out something. But often it's the word for purpose. What is the purpose that so-and-so had in this action? That. Why did Jesus die? That. Here's the purpose. Here's why Jesus died. So that we should not live for ourselves. Christ is our Lord. We're to live as his slaves. Paulos, doulos, Jesu Christu. That's how Paul introduced himself. Paul, slave of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle after the part about the slavery. Christ died for me to purchase me and redeem me from the slavery of sin. Why? So that I could live as a slave of my own desires? No. So that I could be the bond slave of Jesus Christ. This is the all, by the way, of verse 14. Well, see, Christ died for the whole world. Every man jack of them, they're all going to heaven, or at least they have the potential to go to heaven. No. These are the all for whom Christ died. They that live. They who have been spiritually resurrected. These are the elect. These are the sheep for which Christ died. His intention, his design will infallibly come to pass. They shall live for him and not for themselves. That's the purpose of God. Verses 16 through 21, we have the two things necessary to live for Christ. One, regeneration. And two, reconciliation. Now, in the days of Christ's flesh, people knew him as Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, the son of Mary. They might know him in those ways. They might see his physical appearance, know his stature, the color of his hair the shape of his hands. They might know all those things. But now, he says, we do not know Christ in that way. We know no man after the flesh, not their worldly status, their family, their form, their glory, their riches, or other such things. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Ah, yeah, But we have the shroud of Turretin, you see. We have this little idol that somebody put with blood stains on Jesus' face while he was going to the cross so we can make little images of Jesus. Can you? No. We don't know him as the carpenter from Nazareth. We don't know him by images or pictures or other vanities of the Gentiles. What do we know Jesus as? He purchased me. He died as my Redeemer, and now I am completely devoted to him as my Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. The owner, the master of me. He is my master. I am his slave. Paulus, doulos, Jesu Christu. Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. That's how we know him. Our master. Moreover, If we are in Christ, he says, we are a new creature. We are made brand new. We are regenerated. We are resurrected from death to life. This is the infinite love of Christ. 
whether it seems to others that we're beside ourselves or whether it seems to others that we are sober, we are Christ's slaves. All things are new. Our life then is devoted to those new things. What is it that advances the glory of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ? Then that's what I should be about. Not these other things. These things all have become new. And all this because Christ has redeemed us. Christ has consecrated us by his death and resurrection so that we should be holy unto God. Let us then know the truth of Christ's work. Let us live for the glory of our Savior. Let us put a value on all things with this question in mind. Does this build the kingdom of God? Well, if so, I should value it highly. Does this thing not build the kingdom of God? Well, I'll hold it loosely. Does this tear down the walls of the kingdom of God? Then I should repent and get rid of it. All things are made new, are renewed in Christ. And notice all these things, verse 18 tells us, are of God. There is a notion partially based off of Scripture, a twisting of Scripture, that somehow Jesus loves and cares for us, but the Father is kind of distant. He's off. Maybe I'll accept you because of what Jesus has done. That's not the picture the Bible tells us. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. The Father is pictured to us as having sent his Son out of the great love that he had for us. God says, all things are of me, and I reconciled you to myself by Jesus Christ. God the Father does not save his people reluctantly. He reconciled us. We did not reconcile ourselves. Praise God for his great love. And notice verse 18. The Father also gave a ministry of reconciliation. Now, this is true of all of God's people. We all have the words of life. But he's especially referring to those who minister the gospel. We'll look at that in verses 19 and 20. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He took the sin that we had and he laid it upon his son. He did not impute those trespasses to his people, it says in verse 19. Now, imputation is where you have a little book where you keep a record of right and wrong. That's the idea. God keeps a little record book. He imputes it to you. You've actually done it when you sin. But when he imputes it to you, he says, you are responsible to pay me back for this sin. And what is the wages that that sin pays? Death, right? We'll look at that later. God did not impute that sin. He didn't hold you to account. He said, I'm lifting that off of you. I'm going to put that on my son. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This is the doctrine, the sermon, the discourse, the word of reconciliation. Verse 19. You can see this in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, where David calls the blessedness of the man when his sins are not imputed to him. And Paul says that that means God imputes righteousness without works. 
So the non-imputation of sin is the same as the imputation of righteousness. Verse 20, Paul says, We, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is not some gospel band waving their hands and singing songs. This word, to be an ambassador, is presbutero. means to act as an elder or to become an ambassador on behalf of a commonwealth. Here it is King Jesus. He says, these go forth and transact my business. We're delegated to transact on behalf of the King of Heaven. When you hear the preaching of the Word, it's not a mere man you're listening to. If it is, in fact, the Word of God, you're listening to God Himself treat with you and speak to you through His oracles. We pray you, he says, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Paul was the ambassador. The Corinthians were the parties with whom the ambassador treated. And so he asks them to be reconciled to God. He invites them to it in Christ's place. This doctrine, then, the eldership of Christ's church, is the organ through which Christ's ambassage is sent forth. And all nations are brought under the authority of Christ. It is by the preaching of the word, Romans 10. How shall they have faith if they have not heard? How shall they hear if one does not preach? How shall they, pre- how shall they preach unless they be sent? There is an ambassage of preaching, of sending and ordaining men to preach the gospel so that the nations might come. To faith in Christ. This rebukes the every man is an ambassador theory. We're all ministers of Jesus. Well, that's sort of true. We all serve Christ. We're all to do his will. Are we all called to be the ambassadors? No. Or how could he say, we are ambassadors to you Corinthians? I thought they were ambassadors too, Paul. Shouldn't they be telling you to be reconciled to Christ? No, you see, that's a different notion than what Paul is talking about here. Receive then the pure teaching of God's word as if directly from God himself. This is why the Bereans heard very intently. And what else did they do? They examined it to see, is this actually what God says? When you hear true preaching of God's word, it is as if God is speaking to you, as if he is beseeching you through me, be reconciled to God. Notice the sum and substance of the gospel in verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, that is, the Father made the Son to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, ask yourself a question. Did Jesus become a sinner Were sins infused into him such that they dwelt in his mortal body? No, of course not. He was reckoned as a sinner, was he not? Our sins were put to his account. Now, does God infuse righteousness into us so that we may be just and have the righteousness of God? No. 
God imputes the righteousness of another to us, even the righteousness of Jesus Christ, just like our sin is imputed to him. This is very important. Some people believe, in fact, the whole Roman church is committed to teaching this, that you ought to go to hell if you believe what I just said. Anathema. If you believe that you're justified by the imputation of righteousness from Christ, only received by faith. No, you need righteousness infused into you to become the righteousness of God. Is that true? Because if it is, that means that Jesus had our sins infused into him rather than imputed. Draw the parallel yourself. He made him to be sin for us. That's either infused or imputed. But notice it specifically denies who knew no sin. It wasn't infused in him. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And whatever it was for Jesus, it's also for us. It's either infused or imputed. The gospel then is about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us and our sins to Christ. Believe this gospel. Receive this imputation. Trust in Christ that his blood would cover all your sins. And thus far, the explanation of God's most holy word from 2 Corinthians chapter 5.